Welcome to Stock Stories, episode 90. Yes, welcome. All right. Welcome to the Stock Stories Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to helping you, the individual investor, make better investing decisions. Welcome. My name is Alex, your stock storyteller. I am your host for today. Thank you for listening. And yeah, that's what we do here. We help make you a better investor by looking at case studies of real companies and mental models. So today we have got another case study for you today. We're going to dig deep into another component of the S&P 500. In fact, this is one of the largest components of the entire index, one of the largest companies in the entire world as measured by market cap. So it's changed lives. It's been an incredible force in the global economy. You can't really talk about the modern global infrastructure of business without talking about this company. So I am excited to bring to you today, Microsoft. Microsoft trades under the symbol MSFT. Now, Microsoft is the global phenomenon that we now know today as the business that pretty much launched the software revolution in the United States and in the world at large. And why is that? It's because of their operating system, Windows. Windows changed the game. And we'll get into reasons why that was so and how it has evolved over time. But they really made a name for themselves with Windows. They're responsible for their operating system, of course, the Xbox gaming platform. They're responsible for so many different software titles, the Microsoft Azure cloud platform. That's their big thing now is they've moved into the cloud. And we'll get into all these different aspects of their business, but they are the one of the, a few, a select few handful of tech juggernauts that basically run the infrastructure of the digital world today. So where did this story begin? Well, we can't talk about Microsoft without talking about its founder, none other than the man himself, Bill Gates. So what is Bill's background? How did Microsoft come to be? Well, Bill was born in Seattle back in 1955. And by all accounts, he was a brilliant kid. He was very intelligent. And he wrote his first software program at just the age of 13. Now, nowadays in 2019, there are a fair number, although still a minority of kids who are able to code and write software programs in their early teen years. But this is in 19, I think it was, yeah, the 1960s. Nobody was doing this. People didn't even know what computers were or really what they did. And here Bill was fascinated by this digital technology 
and just really wanting to learn about it and make something with it. And so him and his friends, they started learning how to code and they ended up getting banned from using a local company's computer because they were using it to exploit bugs that allowed them free computer time <laughs> because they had to typically pay for use of these computer terminals. And they were so fascinated with it that they wanted to go around to these companies that were the only entities that were able to afford these large expensive machines and, and work on them and play on them and figure out how to code. So very quickly, Bill and his friends, they just started learning everything they could about software and about programming. So his friends formed the Lakeside Programmers Club, and they did something very intelligent. They offered to find bugs in exchange for computer time. So they're like, well, we got kicked out. We might as well use our existing skills to get what we want, which is more time on the computers so we can learn. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, so they went into the offices and they studied the uh, the code of the of the businesses, and this was really great experience for Bill because it helped teach him how to write programs for different types of routines and helped lay the foundation for a lot of his later work. So fast forward through the teenage years, and now Bill Gates is off to college. So he got into Harvard University and he went there in 1973 and he started taking math and grad level computer science classes. So he was already near the top of his field as far as academic knowledge of computer science at this point. Now, while he was there, he ended up meeting a man named Steve Ballmer, who would later become the CEO of Microsoft. Now, later down the line, they both ended up dropping out of or he ended up dropping out of Harvard in 1974, and he wanted to start a business. So Bill started a software company with his friend named Paul Allen. And there's a company that was working in computers at this time called Microinstrumentation Telemetry Systems, or MITS. And this company was pretty big, at the time. And so Bill and Paul devised this plan to start their business. They wanted to get business from MITS. So they called them up and told them that they were working on a basic interpreter for their platform, but they wanted to gauge interest. Now, let me back up for a second to explain exactly what that means. So basic, B-A-S-I-C, is actually a type of programming language and an interpreter is just what it sounds like, a way to interpret that language. So back then, there weren't that many computer languages out there. And so uh, some of the more popular ones were being used to create routines, basically automate different processes and create digital processes. So before Bill and Paul even had anything created, they basically sold this idea to this company. And the company said, okay, well, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll come around and if you can demonstrate your ideas to us, um, maybe we can use that for our products. And so Bill and Paul feverishly set about creating, <laughs> creating um, their product because they wanted to prove that they could 
they could actually work with this platform. And by the time the demonstration was set to happen, they had a working prototype. So they built it, they demonstrated it, and they ended up striking a deal for distribution on what was known as the Altair computer system. This was a product that MITS had. So they ended up getting their first deal just because they were bold enough to say, hey, we have something that you want. And then even though they didn't have that something, they ended up building it so well that when they demonstrated it, they were able to show, hey, we look like we're just some college kid dropouts, but we have skills and we have the ability to create real value. And so that was something that was really a hallmark of Bill Gates's career is he was able to just go in and just use his intelligence and hard work and create something of value right away. So right then, Microsoft was formed. It was formed in 1976 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now, if you're wondering where the name Microsoft comes from, it comes from a combination of the words micro, computer, and software, thus Microsoft. And so that was the birth of the company. Now, things were pretty good for a moment, but then as with any new enterprise, when you're creating something really good and you're the first to market or one of the first to market, you're going to have some copycats out there. You're going to have people who are going to take advantage of your work. So Gates discovered that a pre-market copy of their code had been leaking and many hobbyists liked it so much, but they wanted to use it for free. So at this time, there was a big community of hobbyist computers because computing, remember, just was not mainstream at this time. So the only people that were interested in it were kind of other nerds like Bill. Um, and either you were at this like new technology company trying to make really rudimentary devices for people, or you were just a general hobbyist that liked technology and wanted to tinker around with code. And so a lot of people in this hobbyist community, they word got around that this code um, for the basic interpreter was out and it was really good. Well, they didn't want to pay for it. So they just kind of shared it around. And Gates was really upset with this. He insisted that software developers should be paid for their work just because that you're able to duplicate someone's work digitally didn't mean that it was worth nothing. It's still an intangible asset and it has real value. And this is a really important concept to grasp because up until this point in the modern economy, I think this is a pretty big concept to grasp and that's why I want to talk about it. Up until this point in human history, assets were largely considered tangible assets. Things like houses, things like horses or cattle or commodities like gold or silver or timber. These are all physical things that you and I can see, we can touch. Their utility in our lives is incredibly physical and it's very evident. So if you have a house, you can live in it. If you have farmland, you can grow crops on it. If you have a horse, you can ride on it or use the horse to plow your land or something like that. Tangible assets were the standard in, in finance, in capitalism, in economies dating back throughout human history. 
but never before had we really had something like an intangible asset really up to this point, except I guess you could say maybe certain brand names or, or things like that. Uh, those are intangible assets. That, so that's probably the best example of something around this period or before, but, but really you didn't have something that you could duplicate that was digital, uh, that people valued. It just didn't exist yet. It was an entirely new realm of existence that was being discovered with the creation of the digital realm. And this is even pre-internet. We're just talking about just computing in general. And so Bill kind of realized like, hey, like I'm making something that's valuable. I should get paid for my work by all these people who are getting the benefit of my work. And if you can, com- you can compare this also to another intangible asset, which is something like music, like artists get paid royalties for their music, even though they recorded the song once it's being shared hundreds or thousands or millions of times. And for example, every time you stream music on Apple music or Spotify, the artist is getting some cut of that. Now it may be a very, very small portion something like 0.04 cents or something like that per stream, but they're getting paid for their work in some fashion. And that's the concept of royalties off of an intangible asset like music. Same thing for something like patents or an invention. That's another type of asset that's intangible. It's based purely off of an idea. So if you and I were to create an invention, we patent it, we have the drawings made up, we submit it to the U.S. patent office and it gets approved, Well, now we hold exclusive rights to that patent and then we can license that idea out to a company that will pay us royalties purely based on that idea. So this concept of intangible assets, it had already been exhibited or manifested in the U.S. economy uh, through things like music, through things like patents, but the digital realm was something entirely new. And Bill knew that it was important to set a precedent in this area and to make sure he got paid for his work. Um, so I just wanted to elaborate on that because I think that's just a big turning point in how, as investors, we can look at a company's value, not just through, okay, they have cash on their balance sheet or they have real property on their balance sheet. Well, hey, intangible assets count too. And we can value those things as well. We can value a software program because it has real utility. So at this point, the company ended up getting back to Microsoft. (laughs) The company ended up moving back to Washington. So they moved to Bellevue, Washington in 1979. And here was a big turning point for Microsoft. At this time, IBM... International Business Machines was pretty much the biggest and baddest tech company around. So at this point, IBM, they have some legendary stock market performance if if you go back in and look at the data, and I'm sure we'll cover them on their own episode at some point in this podcast. And IBM, they were like the flagship tech company of the day, similar to how an Apple or, or a Google or a Microsoft are viewed right now. But... Uh, but Microsoft was just this fledgling little software company, but they were approached by IBM to make an operating system for their PCs. Now PC, it stands for personal computer and OS stands for operating system. So if you're unfamiliar, 
the way that this works is basically the PC is the physical hardware, the thing that you're working at and looking at, and the operating system, that's the behind the scenes digital architecture that's actually running things, that's actually calculating uh, how the graphical interface works or how when you move your mouse, you can point and click on something and different applications that run. That's the operating system. And so IBM got wind that Microsoft was pretty skilled at creating code. And so they approached them to make this operating system for them. And Microsoft eventually did. It ended up becoming known as PC-DOS. And this was in the year of 1980. Now, here's the intriguing part of this deal. So Bill Gates, he was pretty wise because he sold the operating system to IBM for a one-time fee of $50,000. But in return, he got a ton of prestige within the software world because of their new status as a software supplier to IBM. So he recognized that he needed to build up Microsoft's brand name. Again, that's another intangible. How do you build the Microsoft brand name when no one knows what your name is? Oh, well, you can supply or partner with a company that already has that brand name and that that clout within the space that you're in. So even though they... Uh, they weren't that big at the time, Microsoft was able to piggyback off of IBM's brand equity to really increase their status. And not only this, an important point is that Bill Gates retained the copyrights to the software because he suspected that people would copy IBM's hardware, which actually did happen. (laughs) So very important, right? He kept the intellectual rights to the software. He just sold it as a one-time fee to IBM. And because of IBM's scale and prestige, they sold a lot of PCs with MS-DOS on it. People saw MS-DOS, they liked it. Guess what? They decided to copy the hardware. And guess what? If you want the software to go with that hardware, there's only one place legally you can go, and that's Microsoft. So this is what allowed Microsoft's operating system to become the default in the industry and gain a large following and popularity. So time went on and by 1985, Microsoft launched the retail version of Windows. So Windows was a big leap as far as operating systems go. It's the first operating system that I actually remember (laughs) from my childhood of like, oh wow, this is what a computer looks like. Oh, okay, this is Microsoft Windows. It was a, had a pretty interface. It had certain elements that still stick with Windows to this day, um, and it was pretty iconic. Now, one year later in 1986, Microsoft had its initial public offering. So they've been trading as a public company now for well over 30 years. And things just kept improving. Microsoft developed new products. Their graphics and their features improved over the years. They created MS Office. That was released in 1990. And it came with these two little programs called Word and Excel. Ever heard of those? I don't know about you, but I use those programs almost every single day. They have been so instrumental to my productivity at work, at school, uh, ever since I was a little kid. I remember learning how to use these programs because they were ubiquitous. You had to have them if you were going to create something like 
a digital letter or a document or an essay or a spreadsheet with an analysis or crunching some type of numbers. You had to have those programs. Microsoft really set the standard for software productivity with these products, with Office. Now, throughout the 80s and 90s, Microsoft made original equipment manufacturers, also known as OEMs, pay a per-processor license, okay? So the people who were making, say, the physical hardware of different computers, because you had different manufacturers, these were the original equipment manufacturers, and Microsoft made them pay a per-processor license, regardless of whether or not they used a Microsoft operating system. So because Microsoft had so much leverage within the industry, they were just collecting fees off of fees off of fees from all of these other companies, essentially is what was happening when they sold all of their hardware. And what it amounted to was they started getting scrutiny from the U.S. Justice Department. This is not a place you want to be in. But on the other side of the coin, that's also an indicator that you basically got a monopoly on the business. I mean, there are other competitors, don't get me wrong, like Apple was a serious competitor and still is in many ways. But as far as the ubiquitousness of the software and product offerings, Microsoft was killing it. So another thing about Microsoft was that they were a very early entrant into the World Wide Web. So it's one thing to create a computer and be able to do useful work on it in the digital world, but it's something entirely different to be able to connect to someone else digitally with their device, connecting to your device, and you being able to exchange information with them. And this quickly became the beginning of the internet revolution, which is a huge topic in its own right. And... uh, (laughs) an incredible topic to even just think about, especially now as we're entering another decade here pretty soon, 2020 is coming up quickly. That was, that was just a huge thing. And Microsoft was very keen on being involved in this from the get go. Now windows 95 came out. Now this was a game changer Had a new interface with a start button and also a little program called internet Explorer was added to that. Now, that was pretty important because it was a web browser. Most people hadn't really been exposed to browsing the web or searching on the internet. Internet Explorer was, for many people, the very first introduction to the internet ever, (laughs) which is crazy. But yeah, uh, I remember getting on the internet uh, for the first time, and it's pretty amazing. So in the year 2000, Gates ended up stepping down from his CEO role And he started in this new role of chief software architect. So he was still very much involved with the software side of the business, with even checking code. Um, He was very involved with product releases for many years. And he ended up making Steve Ballmer, his old buddy, uh, the CEO of the company. So now Microsoft's antitrust concerns were starting to come to a head. So there was a case called the U.S versus Microsoft. And it was a huge antitrust case that went on for a few years around this time. Microsoft had become so dominant that there was a lot of concern about it. And it was really, it was really difficult for Microsoft to fight this because 
uh, it's kind of hard to argue. I mean, they were they were taking over the market so thoroughly that um, there was a lot of antitrust concerns, fears of that competitiveness wasn't really being uh, with upheld. And so the judge ended up ruling that Microsoft should break up into different companies. One company should be the company that sells the operating system. And the other company should be a component company, basically selling hardware of different types. Now, Microsoft got this decision. And well, as you and I probably both know, like Microsoft is still one Microsoft today. So what happened? Well, Microsoft ended up appealing that decision and the appeal was successful. Now, one of the concessions was that Microsoft would share their API, uh, which is a a programming interface with third-party companies. So there was some knowledge sharing. They made some concessions to basically help out other companies within the industry. But think about that for a second. How dominant does a company have to be to get to the point where it's being forced to share some of its data and information with other companies purely for the sake of competitiveness and they're being coerced to by political forces to me that tells me that you have a dominant company on your hands and something that's really making a huge huge difference uh, not just as a business but within the civilization itself so then enter in a new industry altogether microsoft decided to keep expanding and in 2001, they entered the video game market with the Xbox, which was really successful. They ended up competing with Sony, with Nintendo, and they created a game console that was really beloved by many people, including many of my friends. I remember back in school, the Xbox came out and it was like amazing because people just loved it. There were just so many games people could play on it. So they successfully became a game company. They used that software expertise in a different way. And in 2008, several years later, they entered the cloud computing space with Microsoft Azure. And Azure has become a much bigger part of Microsoft's overall business today, but they were entering cloud computing over a decade ago. And and I would say in the past, eh, maybe four or five years, the, the words cloud computing has become like a really big buzzword in the stock market and just in business in general. But Microsoft has been doing this since back during the Great Recession. They developed a Windows mobile platform and later Windows Phone OS, but frankly, they've struggled to compete in the smartphone market. They have not come nearly as close to market domination in the phone market as Apple has with the iPhone, nothing close and Samsung as well. Uh, and even now, Google has phones now uh, that that people are buying. But Microsoft, eh, that's one of their weaker spots. They never really were able to compete much in the smartphone market. But they did try it. Now, in 2014, they got a new CEO. His name is Satya Nadella, and he's still the CEO to this day. Now, some major acquisitions that Microsoft has had during this period include Skype in 2011 for $8.5 billion, and they bought social media company LinkedIn in 2016 for $26 billion, and GitHub, which is the platform for developers, in 2018 for $7.5 billion. 
So in the past decade, they've made a lot of big acquisitions. Most notably, I think LinkedIn was really the huge one buying the social media company that focuses on professionals, finding jobs, HR, uh, and more recently learning and skill acquisition. So Microsoft has had its hands in many different pots, but by and large, they are, at the end of the day, a software company. All right, so we are going to stop it right there for right now. Uh, Tune in next week for the conclusion of the Microsoft episode. We're going to get more into the nitty-gritty of the business model and look at the financials as well and try to determine if Microsoft is worthy of our investment dollars today. Uh, So thanks so much for tuning in this week. Again, my name is Alex. I am your host and stock storyteller. And if you want to get in contact with me, reach out via email at alex at stockstoriespodcast.com. Or if you prefer Instagram, I'm on there too, at stockstories1, that's stockstories, the number one. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.